In 1 Timothy 2, 3-6, St. Paul wrote that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But how do we understand the relationship between this one God and this one man, Christ Jesus? Most of us automatically hear this relationship through the doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons. But this doctrine itself is not found in Scripture. And not all Christians today, basing their faith on Scripture alone, believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. So how should we understand the relationship of God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit? This is what we will discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, the president of the Coming Home Network uh, that sponsors this program. I'm joined today by, by Dr. Kenneth Howell. Hello, Ken. Good. Hello, Marcus. Good to be with you. Oh, it's good to have you join us again today, and thank you for all of you for joining us. I want to remind you that you can um, listen to this program as well as listen to past programs if you go uh, to deepinscripture.com on the Internet. And... I would also remind the listeners right off the bat that we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions about anything that Dr. Hall and I have talked about, either in the past or today, uh, or if you have some scriptures you would love for us to consider, you can write us an email at deepinscripture at chnetwork.org. And if you go to the website, you can uh, find that um, email. Now, what we're doing this week is we're continuing our discussion that we began on last week's program of the those verses in the first letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter two, verses three through six. And we looked last week at two of the themes in those texts that cause division amongst Christians. Um, instead of uniting us, in which the verses were intended to do, instead these verses, and particularly the interpretation of these verses, uh, has led to division over the ages. One of those issues was whether Christ indeed died for all people or whether only he died for the few, the elect. And we talked about that on last week's program. And the second issue is the question of Jesus Christ as the one mediator. And does that therefore, if he is the one mediator, does that therefore eliminate the possibility of you or I being a mediator for each other? Or for us seeking the mediation of the saints um, or angels? Uh, And we discussed that on last week's program. But there's a third theme in this text that actually Ken and I were both uh, chomping at the bit to get at last week, but we want to delay it to this week because there's, it's a very important issue. And that is how do we understand the relationship between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit? And Ken, as we get into this discussion today, I want us to be looking historically, scripturally, theologically, 
But our goal in the end is to end up practically. How do we understand? How do we prayerfully address? How do we understand the connection between God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and their connection to us? And, And so, Ken, let me read the text And then what I'd like you to do for the audience is to kind of, in a nutshell, uh, point out the the conundrum that arises from this passage as well as others. So let me read the passage for those of you that don't have 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 in front of you. Paul wrote, This is good, and it is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony to which was born at the proper time. Well, uh, Marcus, uh, I'm so glad that you reread this text because it reminds us that the mediation of Jesus Christ between us and the Father emphasizes his humanity. He says that he's the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The eternal Son of God would not be a mediator had he not become a man. And this is where the conundrum comes in. What is the relationship between um, the man, Jesus Christ, fully man, and yet fully God? What is the relationship between him and the Father? There are texts in the New Testament which speak of the Father and the Son being one with one another, like John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Or it's certainly uh, implied in, in John 17, where he speaks of being in the Father and the Father in him. So the, the, the relationship between the preexistent Son of God, the eternal Logos, and the Father is a mystery really beyond our comprehension. But it's so important for us to understand it, as you emphasized a few moments ago, because God is the very goal of our life. He's the destiny we're we're yearning for. So we have to know something about God. The conundrum also comes in when you consider what is the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. Uh, One thing I think we can say is that very early on, the documents of history suggest that people were, they believed the doctrine of the Trinity, they they practiced uh, baptism in in the Trinitarian name, but then exactly what that relationship was is not clear. And there were challenges to the doctrine of the Trinity, which forced the church to clarify more carefully uh, what that Uh, what that doctrine really means. Ken, I'm wondering if, from both your background and mine, because you and I have both in our lives been involved and convicted in different Christian traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, I was brought up Lutheran, later ordained a Congregationalist, and then ended up a Presbyterian pastor for 10 years before I became Catholic. And yourself, you have... Presbyterian background. I can't remember if you had also some Lutheran background on you, too, uh, before you between Catholic. But we recognize from bumping elbows with ministers for many years, both of us, that 
you know, this in it, issue of the Trinity is just so blindly accepted today by many and blindly rejected by so many today. And is it is it mainly because here we are in the 21st century so disconnected from the actual history of the early church as well as the developing church for throughout the last two 2,000 years? Yeah, I think there's there's certainly truth to that, that, that people today, if they are living in a Trinitarian tradition like Lutheranism or Episcopalianism, um, Presbyterianism, the, the, you know, the main historical uh, Protestant churches, uh, they accept the doctrine. Uh, but the doctrine at least doesn't tend, I think, to play as central a role in Protestant traditions as it does in the Catholic and in the Orthodox traditions. And so in, in the Catholic and in Orthodox churches, the fact that you always begin your prayer, whatever you're doing, you begin liturgy in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit by making the sign of the cross reminds us that the the Christian faith is based on, it's the most, the, on the Trinity, it's based on the most fundamental belief, who God is. And from an, uh, the standpoint of importance, I think we can say if we don't get the doctrine of the Trinity right, we're going to get everything else wrong. Um, now, for those that grow up outside that tradition, like in Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism and Unity, Unity Pentecostalism, um, they more or less don't understand um, that doctrine well enough to really be able to consciously embrace it. So yeah, the um, the power of custom of my own particular tradition is very very strong, and it keeps often keeps us from either on the one hand believing it or really exploring what it means. Just as a personal anecdote, when I was in seminary, um, and I count myself privileged to go have gone to a very good Protestant seminary, we really dug into Scripture and and, and the doctrines of the faith. We studied the Trinity. But then when I went back and started reading the church fathers about the Trinity, I realized, wow, that I only had a very minuscule understanding of this deep and profound doctrine, uh, which is the great mystery of who God is. You know, I remember in my own seminary training, and I, like you, am very grateful to have gone to a very strong evangelical seminary that was committed to scripture study as well as history, um, Gordon-Conwell. But I remember in my theology class when we studied this very issue and the fairly nationally known theologian I won't mention his name I don't want to besperge him by any means but I remember when this question came up you know well wait a second why do we believe in this doctrinal uh, grid of the Trinity when the word isn't in scripture nor is the formula one in three isn't mm-hmm. in Scripture. So why why do we have to believe that? And his answer, which I think was a a uh, a sumerical uh, uh, rendition of of Saint Lorenz's idea of development, when he said, "Well, the Trinity is the quasi-unanimous conclusion." of Christians throughout all time and throughout all places. 
basically the idea that it was something that it developed over time as if in the very beginning it didn't exist after Jesus. And then over time, as the maturity of Christians grew, then the majority, the quasi-unanimous majority of Christians came up with this as the best explanation they could come up with of these tough verses in Scripture. Again, the idea that as if Scripture came first and then the idea the Trinity came later as a development. Mm. And I remember even at the time thinking that that seems to me to be presuming a lot of ignorance into the minds of the early Christians. I mean, we've, we've become so much smarter after all these years. But it also uh, it seemed to be too influenced by the evolutionary idea of information, this progress that H.G. Wells and others really promoted at the end of the 19th century, that you know humanity has progressed to understand. So even the Trinity was a, an outpouring of the great intellectual growth of humanity. As opposed to what I've come to discover uh, and believe very strongly is that this idea of the Trinity was not something we kind of discovered over time, but was actually something that the Lord himself delivered as a part of the deposit of faith to his apostles that was then preserved by yeah. the church and passed down. Well, that's interesting you should say that because um, my understanding of the, the Council of Nicaea that took place in 325 A.D., um, was for many years the idea that, well, <clears throat> the doctrine of the Trinity was perhaps believed, but it wasn't really articulated, and it wasn't until the church challenged this that that's when the doctrine was formulated. But in, in the last few years, I've actually gone back into the second century writers, um, late second century, okay, so like Justin Martyr in the mid second century, Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus. Uh, Tertullian um, in the third century, um, you see references to this in um, in Cyprian of Carthage and Saint, and then the early Saint Dionysius, who was one of the popes. Um, what all this suggests, as they're discussing this, is that even in the Council of Nicaea, this was no new doctrine. Uh, this was a settled uh, belief on the church. For example, in this document around the time of Dionysius. Uh, the Pope, um, there's a document that um, counters or, or argues against tritheism on the one hand, that is that there are three gods, or Sibelianism on the other, Sibelius being a, a, a heretical bishop who taught that there really was one God, but he was manifested under three different names. There weren't three different persons, there were three different names for the one person of God. So what all this means, I think, is to confirm what you're saying, that this doctrine was believed very firmly by people. How thoroughly it was understood, well, we don't really, that's hard to tell exactly. But it's, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a new issue um, in the early 4th century. It was something that the Christians had embraced. And when Arius challenged the doctrine, uh, the reason that they could respond so definitively to Arius was because they had already believed this for decades and for centuries. So behind this are the two issues, it seems to me, um, 
and that were assumed in the oral tradition of the early church, uh, which was the definitive deposit of faith passed from our Lord to the apostles and then on to their disciples. The two issues which um, caused the conundrum of bringing them together was one, understanding Jesus mm-hmm. as God, or was he a man, or was he adopted, or was he created, or, and that was the one issue. And then if he is God, because they always assume that the Holy Spirit was the Spirit of God, and, and of course God the Father. So if, if Christ is, Jesus Christ is God, the other assumption had always been that there's only one God, so how do you fit the three together? Right. Those are the two issues. Is is the, the man Christ Jesus, as Paul addresses him in verse 5, the man Christ Jesus, is he God? And then second of all, okay, if we got three gods here, how do they fit together into one God? I mean, those are really the, the issues uh, that had caused conundrums in the early church. Yeah. No, well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that um, when you mentioned adoption, now that that is an interesting um, point because if you look at um, the Jewish context and milieu of the New Testament, um, you might come to the conclusion that the Messiah was to be this Jewish man who was adopted by God and made and placed in the position of being Messiah. Um, that was actually taught by one of the bishops in the second century. His name was Paul of Samosata. And so he taught this adoptionism. Now, this is really important because it relates to what your your seminary professor was talking about. Um, what the church clearly saw is that if Jesus Christ was adopted into the to be the Messiah, and we are adopted as sons of God, then there's no essential difference between us and Jesus Christ. There's nothing special about him. And and so um, that means that he's really in no better position to save us from our sins than we are ourselves. And so adoptionism as a theory of who Jesus Christ was uh, on earth uh, failed to live up to this great doctrine of salvation, which the church had always believed. It's understandable why these men over uh, over time in history would struggle with this conundrum that's in Scripture because, Ken, you just described adoptionism. Well, that's not all un- that unlike uh, aspects of Mormon theology. As, as mm-hmm. people take mm-hmm. Scripture, take the words of Paul and James and John and Peter and the and the self-proclamation of our Lord Jesus and try and understand it. Um, yeah. Another passage, uh, Ken, <laughs> I'm going to read. It's, it's one of the most well-known passages from Philippians. But if I read this, Ken, explain how so many people would struggle with what's in this passage and how to understand it in terms of one God in three persons. That's Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5. When Paul exhorts the Philippians to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, this passage, Marcus, is a remarkable one. It's known, uh, you know, among scholars as the Christ, the Christ hymn of, of Philippians, where Paul seems to be breaking into a poetic, uh, almost exaltation of, of who Christ is. But I think that what this um, remember remember the um, the moral injunction or encouragement that Paul's giving here. He says that we as Christians should have the same mind. The mind is that even though we that Jesus Christ was equal to God, he yet he emptied himself of his glory, of his honor, and he made himself into the form of a servant. So Jesus Christ himself is the greatest example of humility because what he gave up in sharing the glory of heaven and become and coming down to earth was far greater than anything we would ever be asked to relinquish in our own lives. Um, sometimes it, when you think about the, um, when he says he emptied himself, um, one of the great heresies that developed in Protestantism was known as the canonic theology. It's based on the, the Greek word kenosis, and it, it, it was the idea that he even emptied himself of his divinity. But the church has clearly rejected that, that Jesus never gave up any, that he could not become something. The divine can't be changed into something less. That actually would be what the Greeks would have thought about the gods. This is why the Christian gospel was so pungent, so powerful in the Greek context, because it was saying that, that the eternal God became man without being one uh, iota less God. And that was very difficult for them, to, um, for them to understand. But by becoming also a man, Jesus Christ then, as he goes at the very end to say, is worthy of all our praise, our honor, our, our adoration, because there'll come the day when everybody will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah, one of the struggles, uh, Ken, that um, I know of Christians who struggle with the Trinity and even struggle with the divinity of Christ is because of certain scriptures that seem to imply that the man Jesus lacked certain divine attributes mm. during his yeah. time on earth. You know, that there are things that yeah. the Father knows that he didn't know. We think mm -hmm. of the Father as being omnipresent. Well, Jesus is right there, you know, so how's he's no longer omnipresent. Yeah. It seems to be this idea that during his time on earth, well, well, what happened to the Trinity? I mean, these are questions that, that arise amongst sincere Christians who are trying to understand mm -hmm. Scripture. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, so, you, I mean, you can understand uh, that if you emphasize one scripture more than another, or if you um, <clears throat> fixate on some one idea and then to the and keep it in its out of balance with all the other ways in which scripture speaks of God, uh, you can become, uh, you can really misunderstand who God is. A modern example that I think is when we emphasize, uh, as we rightly do, the, the love of God, the, the compassion of God. Um, but if we conclude from that, that God is not just, that God will not condemn anyone to hell because, you know, he's too loving of, of a God to do that. What we've done is we've focused on one aspect of the descriptions of God in the Bible to the exclusion of others. And this is what's so beautiful about what has happened in the history of the church. In other words, it wasn't just one individual who, or, or, or you know, the so to speak, the brightest minds of the theologians of those days. It was the bishops as the successors of the apostles who came together under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and they and they defined at the Council of Nicaea exactly what this relationship was, and of course it's it's that relationship which we say in the creed when it says we believe in one God, the Father, the Maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, it goes on to say that He is of the essence; He is of the the essence or the being of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And then it has this expression, begotten, not made. One in substance with the Father, or consubstantial with the Father. Um, <clears throat> you and I learned, but a lot of people don't know, this This Greek word homoousion, mm -hmm. right? Homoousios. God, that means that it's of the same substance as the Father. And that's where the doctrine of the Trinity really, um, you might say, uh, has its its pungency and its and its power, is that the, the the eternal Son of God is of exactly the same essence or nature as the Father, even though he's a distinct person, and it's that second person who is one with the Father in his essence that took upon himself a human nature. To, to save us. Now you remember your 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 seminary professor said something like, you know, this is the this is the doctrine that people have more or less have believed. Well that's true, but it's necessary because the nature of our salvation is to be joined to God through Jesus Christ. Yeah, and the key is not that this is what democratically we all kind of agreed on. No, that's but right. that there was an authoritative <laughs> source behind yeah. this. We'll look at when we get back in a moment, Ken, after this break. See you in a bit. Thank you for listening to Deep in Scripture. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, 
please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. Next time on Mother Angelica Live Classics. We cannot comprehend heaven in all its glory, but we can work to prepare our soul for entrance into the kingdom. Join Mother as she asks, what is the kingdom of heaven like? That's on the next Mother Angelica Live Classics, only on EWTN. Mother Angelica Live Classics is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I'm joined today by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And just a reminder, if you'd like to be connected online to this program, go to deepinscripture.com where you can listen to old programs. You can send us questions. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and, uh, and also opportunity to be able to share with others about this program. We're looking today at 1 Timothy chapter 2, but really the issue of the relationship between the one God and the man Christ Jesus. In a bigger sense, how do we understand the relationship between God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit? We, today, most of us, when we hear that, we are looking through the lens of the Trinity, so we understand that. But we also recognize that there are many people, many Christians today, who base their faith on the Bible alone, that struggle with the understanding of the divinity of Christ, the relationship between the three persons of the, of the Trinity, because they recognize that the word Trinity isn't in Scripture, nor the formula three in one isn't in Scripture. That's something that the church, in its early councils, recognizing the faith as passed on from our Lord to his apostles as it was preserved and passed down and then protected and fought for, I mean, reality in the early days of the church, early centuries of the church. And so often today, when you have aberrant views of the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity, often the reason is that certain Christians have rejected history and have limited the resources that they use to feed their understanding of the faith. So, Ken, as we move on into the discussion of this topic, um, let's first look at maybe one of the most important and clearest expressions of the Trinity in Scripture, which comes from the very words of our Lord himself. After his death and resurrection, he's met with numerous times with his apostles, and then now before the ascension, when he returns to the Father, uh, his final words, as presented in the final paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew. Let me read that, and then, Ken, 
talk about the importance of this passage because we have in this the 11 disciples gathered in Galilee. And they had gone to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Uh, and even that is significant, isn't it, Ken? I mean, the mountain. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, here we have the, yeah. the new gospel given in the mountain back in Matthew chapter 5. And so uh, when they saw him, they worshipped him, it says. And that in itself is important. They worshipped him. Mm-hmm. It said some doubted. But then verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Yeah, this passage, Marcus, um, as you've uh, hinted, uh, forms a very central, um, both sacramentally and doctrinally, uh, the core of the church's teaching uh, about what baptism is and the fact that it must be a Trinitarian bas- baptism. You'll notice that in the text it says that when when Jesus says to baptize them by making them disciples by baptizing them, um, he says that it's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that it's in the names of the Father, mm-hmm. Son, and Holy Spirit. And the word name with that Jewish background would clearly have indicated, um, you know, the character of the person involved. So when it says in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's emphasizing the unity between uh, these three persons that are mentioned. And just as an indication of how this was carried out, in Justin Martyr, writing around 150 A.D., in his first apology, chapter 61, he's getting ready to describe how the new converts to Christianity are, what what's done with them when they come in. And he says they are brought in by us where there is water and are born again in the same manner of rebirth by which we ourselves were born again. For they then receive washing in water in the name of God the Father and Master of all, and of the Savior Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. So Justin Martyr there is a clearly reflecting the practice of the early church that is a fulfillment of this of this truth. Clearly in, in Matthew, in the baptismal formula Jesus gives, there's three there's three mentioned, but they're also united in being, in essence, is the language of the text, the same name. Now, what did that mean? Well, that took time for the church to figure that out. But um, but it clearly indicates this early um, belief in, in the Trinity in some fashion. We have a listener, Ken, uh, who sent a, a, a question. That's, uh, the question is, how can we explain to a person who struggles with believing in the Trinity because they say that it goes against a central tenet of the Jewish faith, namely that God is one. Mm. And I think yeah. you were kind of getting to that in, in your answer to the to the Matthew passage. Well, that, that is an excellent question because um, the creed of Israel um, articulated in, in Deuteronomy 6.4 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that both emphasizes the the numerical oneness of God 
and the uniqueness of God among all the nations. So it would have been very natural for a true Jew to have difficulty understanding. And they that's why I think some of them thought that we can think of Jesus as kind of the adopt a Jewish man adopted by God. Um, but it's not just uh, those that had difficulty with it that emphasize the unity of God. Script, the New Testament itself does that. For example, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is talking about to the Corinthians about meats that had been uh, offered to idols, he goes and says that there are these so-called gods, in, whether in heaven or earth, um, and there are many gods and many lords, but for us... There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we are for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come, and we are through him. So Paul is reemphasizing the absolute uniqueness of uh, of God, the, the oneness of God. And that's what's difficult for people to understand, is how God could be both one and three. And that's why the Council of Nicaea said that it is one nature, one common nature, but three distinct persons possessing that nature. Okay, so in this passage in Matthew, we see our Lord about to ascend, encouraging the the remaining 11 disciples to pass on all that he had taught them. And my presumption is that in the time in his resurrected stay with his followers that he passed on far more than ended up in written scripture. Uh, John says in the end of his gospel that if everything Jesus did and said was put down, there would be enough books. Um, And so the presumption there is that there was so much as a core of the faith that was preserved and passed on that Paul assumed behind all of his letters. Yeah, I think you see that in his letters, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. like for example in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse fifteen, where he says, Stand firm on the traditions that you've received orally and written, that mm-hmm. he's assuming that um, he, every time he writes a letter he doesn't have to retell everything that they already know. And so yeah, that's true. When Jesus is saying, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, it would seem to me that what's behind that is an understanding already that he has conveyed to his apostles of the relationship between the Father and himself and the Holy Spirit, which they have received through the breathing on of the Spirit and through baptism. Uh, that that knowledge is already there. Now, how it's to be articulated One thing we know for certain is that throughout the 2,000 years, the church has always at times had to re-examine how it articulates the truth because the times change, languages change, customs change, people change. And even in the Second Vatican Council, one of the main issues that Pope John XXIII intended behind the council was not that the truth of the faith, the deposit of faith would be changed, but we would re-examine how we express it to the world. And so in many ways, the Trinity, it seems to me that the definition per se of the Trinity that seemed to develop 
in the first and second and third century was how do you explain the truth that our Lord had passed on to his apostles that they therefore are to pass on through baptism to all that how is this to be expressed as the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, as it reaches new cultures, the, in pagan cultures, uh, the Greek languages, all these things. How is it expressed? How, do you, how does it encounter new philosophies? And that's actually how the heresies arose, um, as the idea that our Lord passed on then encountered new ideas and new customs. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I think the um, the way in which um, you see the heresies about the Trinity popping up shows that this is not just a dead issue. That in fact, it it it's something that's faced almost in every generation. But just to give you a couple of examples, remember that the Council of Nicaea was at three twenty five, but most of the treatises about the Trinity were actually written in the next 50 years because there were people that still did not understand what the council was saying and they still didn't um, formulate it properly. Let me just give you one example. In the middle of the 4th century, this is about 25 years after the Council of Nicaea, um, one of the most learned bishops, Hilary of Poitiers in France, wrote a book about the Trinity and clear that he's arguing against the, I think, the Semi-Arians that, um, that God, the union between the Father and the Son is not just a union of the will. In other words, their wills happen to agree. They happen to be on the same page. No, the union between them is a union of nature. And it's, it's the fact that they share the divine nature fully that makes them one. That's what, of the course, is the basis for them, then the conformity of their individual wills to one another because they share this nature. A second example, if you fast forward to the beginning of the 5th century, you can see that the question of the Trinity is still uh, very much a a doctrine that needs to be understood and defended because St. Augustine, down in North Africa in Hippo, in the early 5th century, uh, is still talking about the Trinity and trying to explain what it means. So it's not a dead issue by any means. It's a um, it's a reoccurrent problem that we always need to face. I'd like to draw our attention to another passage in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 12, because, Ken, this gets us to another key term in understanding the relationship between God the Father and and our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And that is the understanding of the word Lord. Uh, in modern America, we don't use the word Lord uh, very much because uh, with the American Revolution, we got rid of dukes and lords and <laughs> kings and, and, and actually adopted the idea that instead of all those terms, Earl, we would use the word Mr. and Mrs. as an equality amongst all people. Um, so we got rid of classes, but I think in the problem, in, in the process, we also lost the idea of the significance of the word Lord. And what I want to read from is verses 3 through 6, because it seems to me that behind these verses, chapter 12, 
verses 3 through 6, behind these verses is already the assumption of one in three persons that our Lord passed on to his apostles, that they were to pass on. This is the understanding, the presumed understanding of the community, but they recognize that to understand that mystery is a gift of the Spirit. Because Paul writes, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the one same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in every one. Yeah, this passage, I think, Marcus, I'm so glad that you read this because the word Lord, the Greek word kurios, that's being used here, that he says very poignantly is, uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This had a twofold kind of meaning uh, or reference. One was <clears throat> to the Roman environment, which even though this is in Corinth in a Greek-speaking area, it's still it's part of the Roman Empire, because the expression was Dominus Kaiser, the Caesar is Lord. And this is Dominus Jesus, Jesus is Lord. So there's the reference, it's, it's the claim of the absolute authority of Jesus Christ over all the kingdoms of the world. But also the word kurios translates the word in the Old Testament, um, Adonai, which as the Jews would say, it sometimes Christians say Yahweh. This is the four-letter name of God, the Tetragrammaton, which was un, not to be spoken by Jews. That's why they use the word Adonai, which means master. Um, but it's clear then that Paul is using the word Lord here in and both in the political sense, but also in the theological uh, reference back to the God of Israel. And so, the, so he's implying a deep union between uh, Jesus Christ as Lord and the God of the Old Testament. Um, yeah, so in fact, just if you in turn, that word. I was going to say, if you turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we see the first use of this when the writer says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Mm -hmm. And from then on, we, we find together this which is in the Revised Standard Version, Lord God, Lord God. This use of the mm -hmm. word Lord in the yeah. Jewish mindset, when they called Jesus Lord, yeah, oh yeah. you're calling him God. That's right, exactly. And so he, so he was a, a double whammy, so to speak. Uh, he, the, it would have been noticed by the Jews because it would have been identified with the Lord God of Israel. But it was also a... Where it was also a, a a claim against the absolute lordship of the state in the, in the Roman Empire. So this is I don't I think it's hard for us sometimes to realize how revolutionary the Christian gospel was the message of Jesus Christ as Lord, um, and then to claim or to believe that this Lord is fully God and has poured out a fully 
divine Holy Spirit upon the church means that there was nothing like it that the world had ever seen. And I would say the world still hasn't seen anything to surpass it. It's uh, in truth and goodness and in beauty. Let's, um, let's pass from theoretical theology and history for a moment, Ken. Um, let's, let's talk about practically. Because mm-hmm. sometimes the Trinity um, is hard to translate into the prayer closet for people. They, they, you know, they, they desire to have an intimacy with God, the Father, with Jesus Christ our Lord, and the Holy Spirit, but they struggle with, well, how do I move forward? Who do I talk mm-hmm. to? How do I talk to them? How do they understand me? Um, move into that conundrum a bit from your own experience, Ken. Well, that's a, a beautiful question because it leads us implicitly into some of the great uh, teachers of prayer in the history of the church. And I'd like to point out maybe one or a couple that were in the ancient church and then a couple today. In the ancient church, the doctrine of the Trinity was not just a understood to be about God as a static being. Being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united in their natures, it meant there was also a communion between them. And so St. Augustine, for example, says that the love of the Father is so powerful and intense that it actually gives birth to the Son. That's what they meant by generating the Son. As, as another person, it gives birth to new life. And as the Son then returns that love to the Father, the, the, the binding force, as it were, the binding cord between Father and Son is another person, the Holy Spirit. This is why John Paul II so masterfully talked uh, about marriage and the light of the Trinity in his Theology of the Body lectures that he gave uh, back in the 1980s. And what he says is that the marriage between a man and a woman is very much like God the Father, God the Son, and their intense love for one another gives birth to new life. And that is an analogy of the Holy Spirit. So their love gives birth to children so that man and woman, united in marriage, become a picture of the Holy Trinity that cannot be seen with the eye but can only be manifested in the love of God on earth. St. Augustine also speaks about love as central to the Trinity. And in fact, in in book eight of his um, treatise on the Trinity, um, he he sort of answers an objection, and the objection goes like this. Well, it says, well, you know, I can see love, and I can see people loving one another, but I can't see the Trinity. And he retorts, on the contrary, if you see love, you see the Trinity. You're, any type of genuine love between human beings is a reflection of that of that divine love. Um, a person that understood this, I think John Paul II was one because he was described as a man, even though he was extremely busy as the pontiff of the church, he was described as a man of deep prayer. But a, another person, another woman that our... Um, our hearers may never have heard of, 
is the Carmelite uh, nun uh, Elizabeth of the Trinity. Um, she was she died young, just like Therese of Lisieux. She lived, I think, just a little bit after her time. She was a French Carmelite, but she wrote down these reflections um, of her relationship of between her soul and God Himself, and so when she and so and it's all about the Trinity. And there was a book that was in French, J'adore la Trinité. I, I adore the Trinity. And it's been translated into English. It's a beautiful reflections on the relationship between the individual soul and God the Father. So uh, I would urge all of us to, to spend some time reading that book as I think it shows the intimate practicality of this high and, and you know, a mystery of the Trinity how it plays out in our daily lives of prayer. It would certainly seem that the writers of Scripture, and particularly Paul and John, the Apostle John, who reflects in his gospel many years later uh, than the other writers of the earlier gospels, the importance of reflection and meditation on the mystery of this Trinity. If you think about John 17 and the great priestly prayer, beginning with verse 20, we have this intimacy in which he's, Jesus says, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And hey, listeners, that's us today, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me in the glory which thou hast given me. I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may become perfectly one. I mean, this, the unity of the Trinity and then the experience and presence of the mm-hmm. Trinity within us by the Holy Spirit. Well, this is so wonderful. It's something that we, we in our work in the Coming of Network have to constantly remind ourselves that unity among believers in Christ is not something that we can create or produce. It's something that comes from the very heart of God. And that's the, the core and uh, behind our work in the Coming Home Network, as you said, Ken. It's, it's drawing people through Scripture and through history and through fellowship to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And through that, understanding the unity we share in this body which we are part of because we have received the Trinity into our being through the sacramental blessing of, of, of baptism and the other sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Ken, thank you for joining us again this week on Deep in Scripture. Great to be with you, Marcus. And all of you, thank you for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this program. Again, go to deepinscripture.com to find out more about it. And I look forward to being with you again next week. God bless.